The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. Early voting in Georgia started this week, and voters there have already shattered records. On the first day that people could cast their ballots, more than 135,000 of them showed up. That's almost double the number that showed up when voting began during the last midterms. Georgia is the state that really defined um, so many of the politics that we're living in now. As my colleague Matt Brown reports from his home state, what happens in Georgia is a really big deal. Both through its upset win with President Biden in 2020, and then with the victory of two Democratic senators. That made everything that's happened over the past two years in Washington possible for the Democrats. Now that hangs in the balance in Georgia. There are two very close races. A Senate contest between Republican Herschel Walker and Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock there's also a rematch between Democrat Stacey Abrams and Republican Governor Brian Kemp. Who wins will all really depend on who turns out to vote in this state that's racially diverse and rapidly changing. I like saying often that, that Georgia is emblematic of a lot of the issues that are going on all across the country. And, and you have everything here in terms of what um, are the top of mind issues for people, including you know, threats to democracy, questions about you know, what type of society we want to live in. Um, in such a evenly divided, polarized state, when it really just comes down to how are even the ballots counted. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Wednesday, October 19th. Today, we look to Georgia. It was once a reliably Republican state, and now Republicans are desperate to lock in their influence again. Can they make it happen? And if so, what would it take? I spoke with Matt about how Georgia became such a politically important place. The one thing down here that everyone across the political spectrum can agree with is that Georgia is one of the most politically consequential states in the entire country. We saw that in 2021 when Democrats had a surprise victory here in the presidential election, or at least a lot of folks in Washington and around the country hadn't anticipated that. What you saw, though, was was years of, of building political activism down here that had been the result of that. And, and in 2022, you're watching a lot of that same energy and debate go on in the campaign trail here between where not only is are there going to be competitive House races in this state right now, um, but also a very, very competitive Senate race and governor's race um, going on. Yeah. So, Matt, what are the key statewide races you're following in Georgia? Can you give us just like a brief rundown? Definitely. So statewide, we have a couple very, very interesting races going on here. The first race that has captured a lot of national attention has been the Senate race here in Georgia, both because it is one of the most competitive races in the country in a state as evenly divided as Georgia is between Democrats and Republicans, but also because of the characters and the candidates who are running in the race. 
You have incumbent senator, the Reverend Raphael Warnock, who is the pastor over Ebenezer Baptist Church, which is where Martin Luther King once was pastor. He's been in the Senate since some very surprise upset runoffs that happened at the beginning of 2021 that gave Democrats the majority that has allowed Joe Biden to institute many parts of his agenda. It's important to note that, that he won a special election in 2020 and 2021 against Kelly Loeffler, a senator who'd been selected to fill out the remaining term of um, Senator John Johnny Isaacson. It means that he has to now like run for his first full term, a full six years in the Senate. You also then have his challenger, Republican Herschel Walker, who is a football phenom here in Georgia, who has been running against Raphael Warnock in a very stridently conservative campaign that has absolutely captured national attention both for his celebrity, the fact that he's been endorsed by former President Donald Trump, and also just a number of controversies that he's had over his presentation and questions over his family life. Now, let's turn to the governor's race. Who are the two candidates there? Can you give us a brief overview? So what's so interesting about the governor's race this year is it's actually a rematch of the 2018 fight between now incumbent Governor Brian Kemp, very conservative Republican from Athens, and Stacey Abrams, um, a former minority leader of the Georgia Democrats in the um, General Assembly in the House here, and a um, very popular national progressive figure who sparred in 2018 over the governor's race. Right. And, and this year is going to be a rematch of, of that exact same um, race. Mm-hmm. So just stepping back, when we think about the makeup and the demographics of the state of Georgia, can you break down for us who are the key voting blocks for these two races? Who are the candidates trying to court right now? I think it's really important to understand just how diverse Georgia is. One of the most important ones is obviously Black voters. Black Americans make up one-third of Georgia, and that has always made it so that they are a very potent political demographic that people are always paying attention to. Um, Black voters obviously um, overwhelmingly back Democrats, but the margin of how much Black voters back Democrats in Georgia is incredibly crucial for if the Democrat actually stands a chance of winning it all. It's been interesting to look at this year how Black men and whether or not Black men will turn out for candidates like Abrams and Warnock has become a pivot question in the campaign. One key voting block that was really essential to Democrats winning in 2020 was the suburban vote. A lot of college-educated voters in the suburbs, um, a lot of white voters in the suburbs who were a bit more moderate than some more conservative voters who you find in rural areas in Georgia, they were absolutely pivotal to Joe Biden's very narrow win here. That demographic has swung back to a lot of the Georgia Republicans up and down the ticket this year, which has shown why a lot of Democrats have been struggling to really pull ahead of their Republican rivals. Matt, what are the biggest issues on the minds of Georgia voters right now? So in Georgia, as in many parts of the country, you are seeing a lot of people are very concerned about, you know, issues like the cost of living, issues of inflation, and and just generally what you can roll into, you know, questions of um, the economy. I think that that is... Not far behind that, though, you are also seeing questions of, you know, threats to democracy and and worries about, um, you know, voting rights and the democratic process are are very top of mind for Georgians. Issues like education and guns are also not that far behind from those two top issues in terms of how voters are really thinking about the race. It's interesting to note that in elections, abortion so far has not, at least in the polls that we've seen, have not actually played that high of a role in what Georgians are talking about. 
before we get to the Abrams and Kemp race, which is super fascinating in part because it is this rematch, I did want to look at the Senate race. As you mentioned, it has gotten a lot of national attention. So maybe we can just kind of look quickly at how did Herschel Walker become the Republican Senate candidate? And can you just sort of touch on some of the various controversies around him? Because I think that's why he's become sort of this national figure right now in in the news. So Herschel Walker is a native son of Georgia, a University of Georgia football legend. And because of that, his star power is really what attracted a lot of people when they were looking for who is a candidate who's conservative, who we can have run against um, Raphael Warnock. A lot of people, most notably the former president, Donald Trump, pointed to Herschel Walker. Mm. And that star power is what really enabled him to absolutely bulldoze the competition in the Republican primary this year to become the official nominee of the party to compete against Warnock. Now, that exact same star power is what masked a lot of people, or blinded, shall we say, a lot of people, to what are some very serious problems. We have many Georgia Republicans openly saying that Herschel Walker was not properly vetted for the job of being a candidate for the party. And that has actually shown now that as the race has gotten underway, there have been a number of controversies that have shown that Walker has, you know, some skeletons in his closet, shall we say, and some issues with his past that have, you know, made a lot of voters uncertain about voting for him. Yeah, I mean, there were the accusations of domestic violence, right? And then he's an anti-abortion candidate with no exemptions, doesn't believe that there should be exemptions. And then there was reporting out that he allegedly paid for an ex-girlfriend to have an abortion, right? Yes. Over the summer, the, the first controversy that dropped was when we discovered that Herschel Walker was the father to several children who he was not currently raising. He was an absentee father to several children. And that's important because Herschel Walker was very public about saying that he thought that absentee fathers were what was wrong with America mm-hmm. and was very, very strident about the fact that he thought that men should be raising their children and present in their lives. And I want to apologize to the African-American community because I know uh, the fatherless home is a major, major problem. And Herschel Walker, who was born in Wrightsville, Georgia, you know, I, took it, I took care of a lot of people in my hometown. I took care of a lot of the places around where I grew up. I was being like a father to some of those kids that may have had fathers. And that was the first sign of an issue of hypocrisy, shall we say. Then later in the fall, we also received news reports that Herschel Walker had not only paid for one abortion, but had urged the same woman who had later had a child with him to have another abortion. Now, this is a man who has, for his entire time on the campaign trail, said that he doesn't want any exceptions for abortion, even in cases of rape and incest. That very, very conservative stance then runs up against the fact that he apparently, in his own life, has urged and paid for an abortion. Show where I have said that this is an abortion. Show where I have said that this is this. No, well, you have it. I just, do you right, know what see, this $700 I, check is I have is no for? idea what that can be for. Is that your signature I, on the oh, check, though? Let me see. It could be. But it doesn't matter whether it's my signature or not. Yes, that's my check. The hypocrisy there has unsettled some Georgia conservatives, but because the race is so tight and because it is so crucial to control of the Senate, you're seeing a lot of people have to weigh whether or not they want to be able to back a man who might not in his personal life stand up for the values that that they believe in, but who they think is absolutely integral to winning power in Washington. Is there any indication in the polling or elsewhere that these negative stories and these alleged revelations about his personal life have negatively impacted his support among Republican voters? 
What I think is important to understand is that Herschel Walker was already down in the polls before the latest round of scandals came out. Mm. A lot of conservative independents, a lot of Republican voters, especially Republican women, were already hesitant about backing this man's campaign before the latest scandals came out. The polls have not shifted that much, but I think that's because he was already several points behind Warnock. I think that what, if anything, this has done from what we've seen from recent polling is that it might have just kept those voters away permanently. Mm. All you need is a couple thousand votes to make sure that that Walker wouldn't be mm. able to win. I see. And and why is Warnock not attacking him? I mean, this seems to be like a huge vulnerability. Why not attack him on his personal life? And is that working as a campaign strategy? I think there's a couple reasons for that. I think the first reason is that Warnock is a reverend. One of the ways that he won his 2020 and 2021 campaigns is by being a very happy warrior, by being a very positive amenable guy who can say that I reached across the aisle, I can agree with people. Mm -hmm. I think the other reason is that Warnock doesn't have a perfect personal life himself. And this is something that Republicans have seized on. They have used police video of Warnock's ex-wife saying that she was very frustrated with Warnock during their divorce and um, that he actually had run over her foot. I think it's important to note that police at the scene when they investigated found that Warnock did not actually do that. But it is a very graphic video that is plastered on every single um, social media and television airwave here down in Georgia. Thinking she's here. Clear. Yeah, yeah I'm thinking she's clear. And I barely moved. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden she's screaming that I ran over her foot. I don't believe it. Warnock wants to make sure that he is able to be appealing to the broadest swath of voters possible mm. here. And attacking Walker is not seen as something that is probably going to benefit him in that effort. Warnock is a, up ahead of Walker, usually by about two to three points in the polls that we've seen. But it's really important to note that, especially because there's a libertarian candidate who's polling pretty well here, oh. that neither of these two men have actually been able to break 50% in a lot of these polls, which means that not only is it still a question of who's actually going to win the race ultimately, but we could see a, another runoff here in Georgia in a couple of weeks as well. Well, Georgians are used to that by now, I would imagine. <laughs> After the break, we're diving into the rematch in the Georgia governor's race and why Stacey Abrams isn't doing better than the first time she ran for governor. We'll be right back. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, host of On Point. Our big number is one. One episode per day, one story per episode, one really deep dive. At a time when the world is more complex than ever, On Point's daily dedicated conversation takes the time to make the world more intelligible. From the state of democracy to AI to the wonders of the natural world. That's On Point from WBUR, one podcast we think you should subscribe to. Matt, I want to learn more about the governor's race. As you said, Stacey Abrams is in this rematch with the incumbent Brian Kemp, the Republican, who is leading right now. Yes, right now in the race, it is very clear that Brian Kemp has 
um, a very clear lead over Abrams. Uh, unlike in a lot of the other races that are on the ballot this year, we have seen that Brian Kemp is actually polling at about 51% in the polls. Now, that might not be the absolute blowout that you would see in some other states across the country, but in Georgia, in the newly minted battleground that we have here, that's a very, very serious advantage that he has. It does show that Stacey Abrams is definitely down, and her campaign isn't nearly as um, competitive as she as she was showing in polls in 2018, for instance. Yeah, I mean, that's just kind of fascinating to me because she is such a national figure and she's credited with, in part, delivering the White House to Joe Biden. Right now, does she need significant Republican support in order to win? Is that part of what's going on here? Or does she just need more Democrats to show up for her? I think that that is the political math that is absolutely um, perplexing everyone down here in Georgia. Like I said, Brian Kemp is about at 51 or so in a lot of these polls, but Abrams is significantly further down. There was a recent University of Georgia poll that had Brian Kemp at 51, but Stacey Abrams at 41. There's a lot of people in Georgia who, for a number of reasons, are just not as motivated to vote this year as they were two years ago. And and that's something that has alarmed the Abrams campaign and and has made it so that they are very interested in trying to turn out every single um, voter possible. I should say at the same time that on the first day of early voting, we had absolutely record turnout and um, disproportionate turnout, according to several analyses, of people of color. So that is something that I think the Abrams campaign is looking to very positively for their chances here. We're seeing presidential election year turnout in an election that both Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams is basically fighting for what type of Georgia um, we want to have here. Um, Brian Kemp is very much running on his record of COVID um, and not having strong lockdowns then. My plan is to use the revenue that we have because we've been open. If Stacey Abrams had been your governor over the last four years, you wouldn't have that excess revenue because she wanted the state to stay locked down and criticize me when I opened it back up. Where Stacey Abrams is basically saying that Brian Kemp's economic policies, his social policies, are, are not fit for the current Georgia and have led a lot of people behind. And I want to point out that Brian Kemp did make promises. He promised to keep us safe, but crime has gone up. He promised to protect us, and yet he's attacked our freedoms. He has promised to take care of our families, and yet the rising prices in Georgia are rising because he refuses to expand Medicaid, because he refuses to tackle the affordable housing crisis that we have, and he's sitting on $400 million of our money that he will not spend to keep us under roofs and in our homes. That message and that polarized message is is really feeding into what I would say is a very, very highly diverse and very, very polarized state when it comes down to a lot of different levels here. Mm -hmm. And I think that that has made it so that both campaigns know that at the end of the day, the polls can say what they're going to say, but both candidates readily agree that it ultimately, in oftentimes in Georgia, comes down to turnout and who is most mobilized. Mm. Why is it that Stacey Abrams, at least at this point when we look at polling, doesn't appear to be doing as well as she did in 2018? Because it seems like in 2020, she was able to mobilize many people in Georgia to turn out to vote. Is it that perhaps Donald Trump isn't on the ballot? Is it that Brian Kemp is now more palatable than he was in 2018? Like, why isn't she as popular as she used to be? Especially now she's like a national figure. I'd say that there's a couple reasons for this. The first is that I would say is that because of the current just situation with the economy and everything, you know, it is top of mind that voters have a lot of concerns about, you know, public safety, about the economy, um, but also questions over, you know, issues like abortion and democracy that, that I think are really driving a lot of their concerns. And when you really look at the swing voters who decide elections, 
they're not entirely sure which way they're they're going to come down on which issue is going to be most important. And I think that that's being borne out in the polls so far. That 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 um, undecidedness um, is is something that I think is really borne out in Georgia. I think that it's also important to just note that it's hard to take on an incumbent governor. I mean, Brian Kemp is not governed as a moderate Republican. He is very proudly part of the conservative movement here in Georgia, but he is able to say many times on the trail. I've heard him say, "You might not like everything I've done, but you." can't say that I didn't promise to do it. With the Lord before us, we set out to do the job that you all hired us to do. And whether you voted for me or not, I have fought hard to live up to the commitments that I made on the campaign trail and ultimately do the right thing even when no one was watching. And that, I think, is something that for a lot of voters who are, you know, looking at the state of Georgia, where unemployment is below the national average, gas prices are below the national average, and even if you don't like the conservative policies that he's enacted on schools or on, um, you know, healthcare and, and the economy, that, you know, a lot of people are, are still willing to move here and support him, especially the um, folks who decide elections in a state with such um, small margins. Over the last three years, we've shown what this team can accomplish even when enormous obstacles have stood in our way. By working together throughout this legislative session, I know it can be done again. And I think finally, Abrams' message in this year is really about mobilizing people who feel that they are not sharing in this health and strength of, of Georgia's economy. And I think that that situation is making it kind of difficult to understand whether or not the mobilization that's happening, whether that's going to be reflected in the polls or not. And it's only going to be able to be understood in turnout. Also, when Abrams lost, she blamed that largely on what she described as voter suppression efforts in the state. She never conceded. Georgia lawmakers since that time have passed even more restrictive voting laws. Are there any concerns about how that could impact voter turnout? So I think that it's important to note that that voter turnout is is not the same thing as, you know, questions over whether people are going to, you know, have access to the ballot or not. Mm. The voter law that was passed in 2021 added a lot more new regulations on, for instance, casting an absentee ballot, both applying for one and being able to actually submit it to somewhere. Um, It affected a lot of things around whether or not your vote could be challenged or not, and whether or not the actual administration of a county could be investigated by the state for potential voter fraud, or even have your county's election systems taken over. But a lot of that law didn't actually have an impact on in-person early voting. Actually, because of the law, you've seen early voting shoot through the roof because it's the only convenient place to really cast a ballot now. I think another thing that's really interested me is the fact that when I go to a lot of Democratic rallies, you do hear a lot of voters saying that they are very, very worried about their vote being taken away. Um, And I think that just the widespreadness of it, um, the fear that people are not going to be able to vote and that SB 202 not only made it harder, but actually made it so that a lot of people aren't going to have access to the ballot, has just been very striking in in how dominant it is when you talk to, you know, supporters of Stacey Abrams, for instance. Could there be a situation in which Raphael Warnock wins, but Stacey Abrams loses? Like, who is the voter that casts that sort of ballot? I think that the polls are showing that there are a lot of people who are very supportive of what Brian Kemp has done with the state, that in the current 
economy. They actually are benefiting a lot from the policies that are going on under Georgia Republicans, but who, when they look at the national level, they say, no, I I liked what Raphael Warnock's been doing, um, and he seems like a steady hand. These are both two incumbents who I'm able to get behind. Mm. Uh, You're you're seeing that there is a significant amount of ticket splitting, whereas while Brian Kemp is ahead of Stacey Abrams, Raphael Warnock's ahead of Herschel Walker. Um, I know that a lot of Georgia Republicans are, are very worried about this, that Herschel Walker's scandals and a lot of embarrassing videos or interviews has made it so that a lot of Georgia Republicans can say, I might support um, having Republicans in control of the Senate, but I just can't get behind this guy. Mm-hmm. That ticket splitting is definitely a reality down here in Georgia. And it's something that I think the Walker campaign is very keenly aware of and they're worried about. So, Matt, early voting has already started in Georgia. As you mentioned, record high turnout over the next few weeks. What will you be looking at? And can anything change the race at this point? Or is it really all about turnout? Well, never say never for, you know, <laughs> some major event being able to to change the race at True. the last second. But <laughs> I, I will say the game right now really is getting people all to the polls. And there's groups left, right, and center down here in Georgia who are working to make it so that everyone is as educated um, and has as much of access to the polls as possible. So a lot of this is just coming down to turnout and, and, and what people are going to be able to do. You know, as, as a reporter covering democracy and voting, the thing that I'm really looking at is whether or not there are going to be any irregularities, whether or not people are going to feel like they're threatened at the polls, and whether or not there's going to be any issues with the actual counting of ballots or or any controversies around that. A lot of folks have said that, yeah, like, you know, the lines were a little long maybe at some points in the day, maybe at some of the busier polling locations. But but, but the question is, what is going to be really, really outside of the bounds of what you would expect? And, and, and what's just going to be a little bit of, of sloppy administration here? Either way, those are going to be the questions that I think are really going to drive the narrative of this election and possibly even determine the winners. Mm. Thanks, Matt, so much for your time. Thank you. Matt Brown is a democracy reporter based in Georgia. The story was produced by Sharla Freeland. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Rena Flores. If you found this show or any of our politics coverage helpful in understanding the state of our country right now, that kind of work is only possible because of the support of listeners like you who subscribe to The Washington Post. If you're not a subscriber yet, now is a great time to start. And if you are, you can gift a Washington Post subscription to someone in your life who could use this kind of valuable reporting. Check out our latest subscription deal at postreports.com slash offer. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.